0: Good morning, church. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Two years ago, on this very week of February in 2016, we began a wonderful sermon series through the Gospel of John. Today, with sermon number 86, We finish our faithful study of this great book. Amen? Amen. The closing passage in this gospel is very special. It offers great insight to us. And so with much excitement for God's Word, let's dig in. And towards the end, I'll share a little more about our two-year journey. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time. What a powerful rendition of your words and Job, your response to Job. Great and bold reminder that we, your creation, need to the worthy majesty and power of the Creator. Father, you are at work in our lives in the most marvelous ways, ways that we don't even understand or or often see. And I pray that you would just continue that work in and through us this morning as we study your word, that your word would be mighty and clear. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the joyful opportunity to, to start our week with our first fruits of just being together in corporate worship to hear your holy word, be instructed for what you have before us. Love us enough to bring true conviction, direction, healing, resolve, Lord, for what you've purposed us for. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To help set the table for this final interaction that John records in his gospel, let me remind us what just took place. In this conversation on the shore of the Sea of Galilee between Jesus and Peter, Jesus and seven of the disciples have just finished a great fish barbecue for breakfast. Jesus takes this opportunity then to prepare Peter and the disciples for leading and feeding his sheep, his church. In verse 18 and 19, last week we studied that Jesus declared that Peter would die by crucifixion in his old age, a death that would glorify God. This news came on the heels of Peter declaring his love for Jesus three times. An important moment of restoration for Peter's sake since his failure at Jesus' arrest, by which he denied knowing Jesus three times. Very famous. Um, weakness in Peter shown in his flesh there to avoid persecution. Jesus finishes this leg of the conversation by saying to Peter, follow me. As Jesus approaches his ascension to the right hand of the Father and the disciples will then go on to launch the church, write the New Testament and die for their faith, many of them for Jesus' sake. They are truly now living out the often taught focus of Jesus for his people which for example we see testified in Luke 9:23 if anyone would come after me Jesus says let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me this is the life of a christian unlike many modern churches claiming christ and Modern day things, activities, even gatherings in the name of Christ and are peddling so many other things. The life of a Christian is the life of one who has died to self to live for Christ. Not someone who's figured out a way to add God to their life and thereby kind of have this genie in a lamp, better life experience, putting God in debt to us, totally contrary, even to the very scripture we just sat under in song. To die to self every day and give our lives joyfully for the glory of God, for the gospel of Jesus, is a marvelous thing. It is our high privilege to follow Jesus and, and to give our lives for him. And Peter got this, he got it better than just about anybody. But Peter is also a human man with his own struggles. And we see that play out in the next leg of the conversation, which is our opening text for today's sermon. Look with me at John 21, 20 through 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, Peter has just been blessed. In the text we closed with last week, we read that the Lord has blessed him by telling him he will finish the race in faith. Even though he also tells him in the same way that he's going to die by crucifixion, nothing, no one in flesh looks forward to that. It is a good news thing for Peter because he has just come out of the season by which he very much struggled in his faith. He, he denied even knowing Jesus. So to be affirmed, you're going to finish the race, was really a great blessing for Peter. And what he should have been was elated, joyful at this news, ready to go to serve his king, to do what Jesus said, which is follow him. And there are a few steps down the road, and Peter's mind starts to get going. And what he does, he goes, hey, Jesus, what's going to happen with this guy? Is he going to die for you too? The man that Peter refers to is identified by many clear indicators, but not by his name. But we know that the disciple whom Jesus loved, as referenced in our text today, is John. The one who leaned back against Jesus at the Lord's Supper is testified as being John, the other Gospels. The one who asked, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you is John. So it is John that he's referencing, the author of our gospel that we've been studying for two years now. It's him that Peter says, Lord, what about this man? It's really his way of saying, what's going to happen to his flesh? Is he going to die like me for you? What's interesting about that is John would not be martyred for his faith. He'd be the only one of the disciples who would not be martyred. He would die in exile but not be martyred for his faith. But what Peter is asking Jesus in this is something we all struggle with. It's what happens when in our flesh we we get concerned with other people's business. Uh, We often find ourselves, maybe when you do something wrong, deflecting, pointing out, hey, that guy also did something wrong to try to even just cope with the moment, the fact you got caught. I remember when I was in middle school, I got three tickets on my BMX bike, partially because in Irvine, where I grew up, there's no crime, and so the cops are totally bored, so they write tickets to BMX kids. Serious. Safest city in America back in the day. We, Irvine was deemed. Now it's just the most crowded. Um, and I remember one time I came down this hill, this awesome hill we always used to love, and you just bank around this corner. Well, they end up putting a stop sign there eventually, which just kills all the fun of going down this hill. And so, me and like twenty other kids just plow this corner, and there's the cop, and he pulls me over, and maybe a couple other kids. And the first thing we do, we know we're guilty of running the stop sign, but we're going, "What about all those guys?" You know, this is the way you kind of cope with the moment. Uh, we're so quick to concern ourselves with others. Not in a good way, not in a loving way, but in a looking out for myself kind of way. In a, in a nosy way or a selfish way. And in, in one of the great places we see evidence of this is in our kids, right? I mean, I know it well. I have four under my roof. The babies don't really count for not They haven't learned this tactic yet. But the other ones have. Right? I mean... Um. So you see it in kids, quick to go. You know they're super guilty. But let me tell you about what this person did, right? And I'll tell you another place I see this a ton is in marriages, in relationships. You know, instead of each person focusing on bettering or repenting themselves, we're constantly fixed on what the other person did or isn't doing or what they should do to improve the relationship. And, and man, the, this, this sinful thing that we do in our flesh, is it's like the plague. I mean, it really is potent and trapping and paralyzing. It's a real problem. And, and Peter just shows evidence. He, he loses this amazing moment that he has to really focus on Jesus and be ready for what God's called him to do. And his flesh just, ramps up and he just all of a sudden as they start to walk like what about John? You said I'm going to die by crucifixion what about him? And let's look at Jesus' reply verse 22 John 1.22 Jesus said to him if it is my will that he remain until I come what is that to you? You follow me I love Jesus' response to Peter here. Jesus sets Peter straight by saying, It's none of your business what I, the sovereign God, decide to do with John or anyone else. He says, What is that to you? It's really his way of saying, What does that help you anyway? And what I just called you to do, which is to focus on and follow me. He's trying to say, You're distracted. This is not where your focus should be. It's a distraction from the faith walk and the ministry that I've called you to do. So Jesus loves him enough to reorient him, to correct him back. And how does he do that? He says, you follow me. And this has been Peter's journey. And we're blessed by God to write these down often. Why? Because we often, I think, relate to Peter's journey in this. A great example of this same struggle is that moment in we see in Matthew 14 where the storm's raging in the middle of the night, the disciples are on the boat, and all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the water. The rest of the disciples are scared out of their minds, wetting their pants, and Peter's going, Jesus, call me to walk on the water with you. His faith just flies. He's just stoked. Yes, call me to come do that with you. the other guy's like, whoa. Still trying to figure it out. So Peter hops over that edge. He's walking on the water, looking at Jesus. There's his Lord. He's full of faith. And by God's power, Peter's walking on the water. And then... Same thing. It's this rad moment. And then all of a sudden, what is Peter do? He gets in his own head and he starts to look left and look right at the storm raging around him. Takes his eyes off the Lord. And it's one of two ways that the flesh is at work there. Either Peter probably did this whole thing like to kind of peer over his shoulder at the chumps back in the boat like, do you see what I'm doing? Or focusing on the storm and then, just overwhelmed by fear, it says he began to sink, not walking anymore by faith, but full of fear, full of focus on his circumstances. And he begins to sink. Jesus reaches down and grabs him, says, "You have little faith." Comes from a moment of bold faith in comparison to the rest of the disciples to losing sight and struggling in his sin in his flesh, focusing on his circumstances. A quick clarity here as we dissect this passage is what we see right here is really potent. Jesus, number one, is not declaring that John would not die until he came again. Okay, If that is what Jesus said would happen, then that is what would happen. And that means John's still here. Maybe he's kicking it in Puerto Rico, rocking a really great tan. 2,000 years later, John's still alive. If that's what Jesus said, like, he's going to live until I come again. No, that's, that's not what he's saying here. Jesus simply meant, if it was his will to cause John to remain, he would remain. Why? For everything that we've said and studied so far this morning, because he's God. John twenty one, twenty-two, Jesus said to him, If it is my will, Peter says, Hey, well, time out. What about John? And Jesus turns and looks at him and says, If it is my will that he would remain, he would. You follow me. we have to stop and really digest what's going on here i mean this is the word of god the one who created and sustains and purpose all things according to his perfect will i just don't want us to miss what jesus is doing for peter here and what it can do for us we must know church that and embrace the reality of god's providence and honor him as the one who is over all things When God acts, he does so only because he willingly and independently chooses to act. According to his own nature, his own predetermined plan, and his own good pleasure. He decides to do whatever he desires without pressure or constraint from any outside influence. And God's word says this to us again and again and again and again and again and again. So many agains that I had to trim a ton of these scriptures out of my sermon today or would be here for hours and hours and hours. But let's dig into a few. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Christ is upholding the universe by his word of power. Colossians 1.17, Paul says of Christ that in him all things hold together. Such teaching is affirmed by Paul when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17.28. In him, we live, we move, we have our being. In him, all things hold together. Man, when you, when you question if God is present, you, 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 your brain is working, is held together because he's present. Your teeth stay in your mouth. Your nose doesn't fall off your face because he's holding all things together. The chair is working underneath you. That's how present he is. That's how active he is. God continues to give us breath each moment. Elihu says of God in Job 34, 14, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says of God that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. This means no event in creation falls outside the providence of God. Now, the fact of this reality is is hidden from our eyes. Thankfully, we get to read it from him, from scripture. But just as he preserves, continues, he works in concurrence with his creation in ways we can't see. So the declaration of God about how he works in these ways is critical. Psalm 139, 16, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before any of my days, he says, you wrote my days. Job 14, 5, Job says that man's days are determined the number of his months is with you you have appointed his bounds that he cannot pass acts 17:28 all our actions are under god's providential care for in him we live and move jeremiah 10:23 the individual steps we take each day are directed by the lord i know o lord that the way of man is not in himself that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Proverbs 20, 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you've not received it? All our abilities, all our talents are from the Lord. Now, a key clarity to be made, and it's five other sermons, so I can't get into it, but I'll declare it so we rightly understand that we don't rationalize these things with human logic. We, we depend on his holy scripture. God causes all things that happen, but he does this in a way in which he upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices that have real and eternal results for which we will be held accountable. He does this in such a way that also God never does evil. So when Jesus says to Peter, if it is my will, it it is a great sign for us to read that and remember who's in charge Who's worthy of honor and obedience? It is God's providence to fulfill his plan. It is our job to joyfully and faithfully follow him in obedience to his will. So this is Jesus' simple yet potent charge to Peter to follow him. and really to rebuke his distracted focus on another, he says, you follow me. He's saying, what I ordained to happen to John is my decision and right, and it is not your concern, but what you are to do is to focus on following me. I mean, it's a massive lesson. And a much needed reminder for us who are God's people, who are studying this passage today, why? Because we're regularly guilty of worrying about what will or happen or what might happen, or think we sh- what we think should happen, and not l- trusting it to God, leaving it to God, wanting His will, and and in doing that. We get to focus on the mission he's put before us. Brother, sister in Christ, are you worrying about what tomorrow will bring? Are you working to try to make things go your way? Are you busy telling God how he should act? Are you constantly thinking about others and what they need to do or not do? Instead of doing the one thing the Lord has saved you and called you to do, which is to follow him, to trust him, to obey him. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. This is such a central charge for Jesus to the disciples and therefore us who are his disciples today that we consider it today with urgency. What does it look like to follow him? Not be distracted by others and the circumstances that surround us to trust God with that to stay focused and faithful, follow him. For scriptures come to mind. Four key ways that we follow him. The first is not to follow your own will. Can't do your will and also do the Lord's will. That's why it says you must die to yourself. Either you're Lord of your life or he is. I love Paul's words of this in Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me number two to not be conformed to this world, but to be sanctified and transformed in Christ, unto Christ. Romans twelve two: do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. want to focus and follow him. You need to be conformed to his will, to his word. And yet here's one of the great struggles. As you might be saying, yeah, I want that. But what are you washing over yourself all the day, throughout the day? I mean, I've had people more and more tell me, Pastor, why are so many people once claiming Christ claiming, clinging to these things, these agendas of the world, priorities of the world that make rational sense, that are in different forms in the name of love, these different things that people are kind of spinning and and putting and building and putting together. Why? And and here's one of the big reasons why I think why. Because a lot of people have said yes to Jesus or kind of try to get Jesus in their lives but their practice daily is just to wash themselves with the world. And here's a simple way to test that. How many moments or hours of your day are you watching and reading and seeing what, what comes through this, through Facebook or other means, the ideologies and the thinking, and you're hardly ever being washed and reoriented and taught by this. To not be conformed to the patterns of the world. There's a lot of agendas. There's a lot of of money, a lot of movement in the numbers of people getting caught up away from God, His Word. We have to reorient. We have to be transformed in our thinking to what He's given us. Test all things according to Scripture. Number three, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. What, do you, what are you working towards? What are you walking towards? What are you waking up to? Is there a focus on Christ? A walking with Him? Let us run with endurance the race that He has set before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And number four. So it looks like to follow him, we have to abide in him. Cling to. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. It's a gospel reorientation. It's a constant satisfaction that Jesus is better than whatever else is calling for your attention or getting you spun up. There's abiding. There's a satisfaction. There's a joy to grow and mature in Christ. Now, before we move on, I told you there's a real potent application to this part of the passage. Um, Let's talk about what concerned Peter here. I kind of skipped over. I want to focus on it for a minute. I like to call it the doctrine of fairness. It's a belief that we often hold, which says life should be fair. And he got caught up in that in this moment with John. Hey, what about him? Hey, you just said, I'm going to die by crucifixion. Hey, what about this guy? You going to die too? To help us digest that, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. And I want to show you a passage, one of my favorites in Scripture, where Jesus is teaching on the idea of fairness and of God's providence. Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out to his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And then in the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And though, when the, those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving, they, it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first last? Our modern culture and society would have an absolute fit over this passage. (laughs) Because our culture right now is crazy for this idea of fairness You guys, life is not fair. So stop longing for it to be so. The very economy of God's sovereign rule is not fair. And some will say, then I don't like that kind of God. I elevate my own wisdom and my own authority to a place where I so love the idea of fairness that I don't like that kind of God. Now, God is just. But do you see the problem with what happened in this passage? What they were upset about was what the owner decided to do with his money. They were upset at his generosity for those who worked less and wanted in the name of fair for that to be evened out. They received exactly what they agreed to for their day's work. And this is what we do to God. But but God is not governed in terms of our logic of equality or fairness. He is governed in his perfect will and rule and reign. The point is, it's not ours to debate or decide what God perfectly ordains for each of us. But yet in our sin, we get caught up in this, do we not? In his perfect wisdom, if you are short, don't look sideways and wish that you were tall. God ordained you to be short. If you are not entrusted with much money, be thankful for what he has entrusted you with and praise him. If you are not entrusted with child children by birth, Trust God's plan for your life. If you are entrusted with children by birth, raise them unto the Lord. Let me make that one harder. What if you are entrusted by children by birth, but they don't live to see the age of four? And you're looking left and right and seeing other families' kids grow to their teens and go on to be adults and get married and have kids and grandkids. Who are you to tell God how we are, this creation is governed? If your co-worker didn't work as hard as you, but got the promotion and the bonus that you deserved, oh, why is it that that one always really gets us? Don't forget that you have eternal life Because the one who deserved everything gave up his life so that you who deserved condemnation from God are given his righteousness and his glory. Church, you don't want fair. In our pride, in our ego, we are fools to think that we want fair. We think too highly of ourselves. We think we can earn it and get it done and be better off. You don't want fair. An economy of fair means you get what you deserve. You don't want what you deserve. You want what God is willing to give in his grace and his grace alone. That's the beauty of the gospel. And why we got to tear apart the idea of religion It's the grace of God that we have any hope. Understand that one Christian is not blessed more than another based on what they have. Our our blessing is because we are his. All in Christ have been given the greatest standing and treasure one could be given. We're all possessors of it. That that is Christ. (laughs) New life in his kingdom, life with God. No matter our lot in this life, no matter how full or failed this life might be to you in any given season, if you have Christ, you are stupid rich. Do you get that? I mean, Christians are so cliche to say that Christ is enough. Do you believe that? If everything else was taken from you, you're falsely imprisoned for the next 40 years of your life, is Jesus enough? Or are you a wreck? Do you shake your fist at God and say, how dare you? I was so faithful to you. I deserve more. Instead, I'm saying, I deserved far worse. Praise your holy name. See, Job got this in his darkest hour. His kids are killed. His career is stripped away. All of his profit gone. He's got the worst crazy disease ever in his body, stricken. And he says to the Lord, naked I came into the world, and naked I'll leave. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Despite all that, I trust him. I have faith in him. I'll worship him. He's enough. Jesus is enough. If you have Christ, the scriptures say that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavens. And and, and Paul makes it so clear in Romans 9. Verse 20 and 21, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? It is sin That causes us to get caught up in looking left and right, looking for fair, worrying about what someone else has or what you don't have. It is coveting, it is greed, it is selfishness, it is not being thankful for God's amazing grace. Instead, let us say with James, James 4.15, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. So much good stuff, I'll go on, on, but we have to keep going. Look at verse 23 with me. John 21, 23. <sighs> Lord, help us. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it was my will that he would remain until I come, what is that to you? All right. So, so often like sinful men do, these guys misunderstood what Jesus said about John and his sovereign rule over John's life. And they begin to spread or gossip to others that John was not going to die. Hey, do you know that John's not going to die? Jesus told, I heard it. He said, John's not going to die. John himself gives affirmation that this is not what Jesus said, but highlights again that Jesus was saying, if he wanted to, he could cause him to remain. He's just saying, I'm God. It's all my creation. I'm sustaining you, all of it right now. If I wanted him to remain, he could. That's his point. Not, he's going to live until I come again. But this is what gossip does it spreads misinformation. And convolutes the testimony of Christ. Likely brought additional work for the disciples to have to clean up later. And and just see that it's, it's... It just essentially follows Peter's sin to be worried about others. And getting involved in other people's business instead of remaining focused on following Christ. Many sins that become normal in our days, kind of act in this way. They're not necessarily detrimental in and of themselves, but they're a distraction. They're a deterrent from what we are to be focused on. Whenever disciples of Jesus or missionaries of Jesus are distracted with anything other than the mission he's called this to of disciple-making and gospel-testimony, that is a win for the enemy. It's a win to get us distracted. And gossip is one of the main tools for this. So can I make it personal for us? What, what we see happening here is key, and, and we can learn from it. So my hope is that we don't duplicate the air. Gossip is such a waste of time. It's a deterrent from what we need to be focusing on. The Bible warns us regularly against the sin of gossip. In Romans chapter 1, Paul listed it as one of the great sins of unrighteousness. Speaking to the women specifically in, in that area, in 1 Timothy 5.13, Paul says that gossips and busybodies say what they should not. I often define gossip like this myself any information we share about someone else that causes the person you're sharing it with to think less or negatively about the person or people of the topic. Many times what's being talked about is of no consequence to the other person and therefore we need to heed what Jesus says. What is it to you? Why? Why are we spending time talking about other people's stuff? Gossip has been something I've been passionate about. I've seen in a lot of years in the church, in history, it just be detrimental, it'd be a distraction, it'd be like a plague. And I've wanted so much for our church to avoid and to work hard against, and it takes a lot of work to do. that. Our flesh loves to rear up in these ways. And and, and I want you to hear this from me, family. I want us to run close. I I want us to know each other intimately, really be family, and we're experiencing that. It's been a great joy this last season of our church. But that doesn't need to happen by sharing other people's business with each other. See what Jesus is highlighting here. It's a a detraction from what is important. Why did God ordain that John would include this testimony that the guys didn't hear him well and they went up and spread this thing and it just became a problem? We've got to fight our flesh that just wants to be in the know. You don't need to be in the know. You don't need to know what's going on with everybody. It's not only not helpful for your focus to follow Jesus often, but it is a burden that, trust me, you don't want to carry. As a shepherd of this flock with the other elders, we are by God's command on our lives to walk with you in the hardest parts of life. We are privy to much of the details of your lives. This is not a lightweight responsibility. But it's also one that doesn't need to be shared if it doesn't have to be. There's times where as leadership and plurality, we have to work together in that. But... For example, there's many details about many people who are very close to my family, and my flesh could justify it. This is why my wife needs to know all this. So little of none of it do I ever go home and just tell Jen. Why? Because she doesn't need to know. She doesn't have context for it. She's not labored in and through it with me. And more than anything, I don't need to taint the way she sees other people in their hardship when it doesn't need her involved in it. And likewise for us as a church family. Many of you have experienced this with me. I've longed to work hard at this. And even when you're sharing stuff with me and I just don't need to know, I'll just tell you, I just don't need to know. Even sometimes our own leaders in the church, I trust the leaders, I trust my other shepherds. Sometimes I just don't need to know. I trust that you're going to handle it. I don't need to also carry it. I don't need to also process it. So let's just not talk about it. Just another way to not be necessarily distracted by what everyone else is going through because it is distraction. I trust our shepherds. I trust our staff. I trust our group leaders to lead under the glory of the Lord. And so can we, can I ask us to just work hard at fighting to push back on any kind of gossip and just shut it down, to redirect people to go, you know what, go back to the source. Do what the scriptures call you to do, which is take that hurt to them. Now, there are times, and good biblical reason, why sometimes you need to come to a leader or a trusted, mature brother or sister in Christ and say, I'm in this tough spot, can you help me? But you go to one leader, you don't need to go to five. You also don't need to go to a group of people you go to a leader you keep it confidential and that leader's job is not to then go tell the world and the leader's job now or that mature brother or sister's job now is to is to make sure that you actually go back and follow up with that person why because if you don't then all you did was gossip about them you weren't looking for counsel as to how to handle that situation you were just wanting to tell someone else's business to somebody so now the leader or the mature brother or sister needs to hold you accountable to actually go see it through why so we fight back against the gossip we don't keep the train running We're working hard to shut that down. And it's tough. Our flesh struggles with it. We want to be in the know. We like to be in the know. And I just want to ask that we just work hard to fight the the sin of gossip um, and not cause unneeded hurts. This will help us from passing misinformation which often comes out of the, the daisy chain, the phone thing. If I whisper in Darren's ear and he whispers and we do that whole thing, and the time it gets over here, it's like nothing even close to what I said. It's this complete other thing. So we, we, we look to press back on not passing misinformation, going to the source. But here's the thing. Here's the thing in this context. Most of all, it helps us do what Jesus is trying to get Peter and these guys to do, which is to focus on him. You're distracted with all this other stuff. Focus on Him. Follow Him. Look at verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Here in verse 24 of John 21, John uses these words to sign his signature to the close of this gospel. It's his validation for the things written in the book. He, He bore witness himself to these things and he's also been inspired by God to write what God wants written. And so he clearly says these are truth. And it's really potent that he would say that right on the heels of there's a lot of mistruth being passed around. Gossip's flying around. This is your grounding for truth. And, and I got to also believe that he, God knows what was to come and all the misinformation of what people would talk about him and these things. And so we need an anchor of truth. Praise God. Could you join me in praising God that he wrote the gospels that we could know these things by his word and not just by rumor. I praise God for the written word of God. And that's really what he's doing here. He's validating that. And you might say, but he doesn't mention his own name here. It's a good observation. But he doesn't do that in the entire book. Um, John's mentioned 20 times by the other gospel writers, but he never mentions his own name in his own gospel. But again, I've mentioned this many times before. He refers to himself instead by markers that we know it's John, for example, as the disciple that Jesus loved. And I just told one of my brothers at the club yesterday, we were talking about John. I said, I just love that, like, He never refers to himself by his name John. Why? Because a lot of dudes named John. If you have the choice between being known by the name John or being known by the name, the disciple whom Jesus loved, you pick the latter. This is way better, right? That's what he did. That's how he referenced himself. It's a very special thing to him. The testimony of of Jesus' life in John's gospel is by eyewitness accounts, and it's also by the authority of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. That one, it's one word in the Greek, theopneustis right there. That means breathed out by God. It's God's word for us. Peter later speaks of this in 2 Peter one twenty one, saying that God moved on certain prophets. That word moved there in the Greek means carried along or overwhelmed by force. In other words, what God wants us to have is what they wrote. Jesus chose his apostles as his representatives, saved them, taught them, sent them, gave them through the Holy Spirit what he wanted written to be the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20, the work of the apostles would set that for us. Praise God for the written word of God. And then finally in verse 25, John 21.25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did where were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Powerful. So these final words of John, he gives his personal seal and as the writer and speaks of the truth of God's written word. And he closes with this point, this awesome point to emphasize the fact that you're talking about the glory the infinite glory of Christ it's not containable in written word we have exactly what God wants us to have so i love how the apostle just, he just closes with the the gospel with another reminder the inadequacy of human words to tell of the fullness of of Jesus' glory. That we should just be in awe and wonder of his deity, a high focus of this gospel, of his worthiness as God to be worshiped and trusted and followed. (laughs) That if tried to be written down, the books of the world cannot contain it. Praise be to God to ordain what is written and that it is acceptable is accessible to you and I by translation and by preaching. Do you, do you know how much of a gift that is? There's so many people out there who don't have the Holy Scriptures yet translated, or people to rightly divide them for the sheep of those flocks. But this is God's Word, God's Word to us, and that's why your elders here are passionate about wanting to rightly divide it for us. So, Back to this Sunday, two years ago, 2016, I shared um, a, a quote with you as we launched into the sermon series, and I felt it important to share this quote with you because what we were about to embark on was something we hadn't done. See, sermon series back then, it was like really long if we did 12, and people would start complaining about 8, 9, or 10, like, hey, when's the new thing coming? And it was just a different kind of preaching, different kind of day, and God's been maturing and growing us, and I, I wanted to share why it was so important that we slowed down to really preach it rightly. And so I shared these words from Wayne Grudem, very convicting for us, longing of our heart. Share them with you again today. Throughout the history of the church, the greatest preachers have been those who have recognized that they have no authority in themselves and have seen their task as being to explain the words of Scripture and apply them clearly to the lives of their hearers. Their preaching has drawn its power not from the proclamation of their own Christian experiences or the experiences of others, nor from their own opinions or creative ideas or rhetorical skills, but from God's powerful words. Essentially, they stood in the pulpit, pointed to the biblical text, and said, in effect, to the congregation, this is what this verse means. Do you see that meaning here as well? Then you must believe it and obey it with all of your heart. For God himself, your creator and Lord, is saying this to you today. Only the written words of scripture can give this kind of authority to preaching. And so with that, we want to slow way down and just enjoy the fullness of this great gospel that God's given us to study. I pray that I've done this well for the glory of God and the power of his holy word to transform our church and our testimony to this city. I count it a high call and privilege to be entrusted with the preaching pulpit at Disciples Church. These 86 sermons in the gospel of John have been a true highlight for me in my 19-year pastoral career, mostly because of what I've seen God do in you all, in us. And to see you be faithful and hungry to keep digging in, it's like a whole new thing. I get chills saying that because I remember the people used to balk at like sermon six, like getting bored. It me something new. I don't know of one person who's left their church because the gospel of John took too long to finish. I seriously don't know of one. Praise God. It is, a, it is so exciting to me that if today is my last day to preach or to live on this earth, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that, right? Then I believe we've been faithful with what we've been given. And if there's many more to come or even years to come, then we have much to look forward to as we continue to glorify God through lives being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Stand with me. As you stand, I want to close today's sermon and this two-year sermon series with this. The last scene that John gives us in his gospel of Jesus interacting or speaking is with his disciples. And he's reorienting them and he's preparing them for what's to come. John doesn't give us a view of the ascension of Jesus while that's potent and powerful or even the beginning works of the church. But what we do have is a very poignant and potent statement that I believe is still very much for us today. The last words that Jesus gave in the gospel of John are to his disciple. He said, you follow me. a fitting word for each of us today as we continue our earthly pilgrimage for the glory of the Lord. You follow me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this journey. We thank you for your perseverance of us to to see and savor your holy word that even on days where we do struggle with that, to, to really savor your word, to, to long for it, And it's so much easier to let our flesh just kind of be washed over by the things of the world. It's been a joy to see our men and women and young ones to to long for God's word, to dig in, to take good notes, to ask good questions, to wrestle with hard truths, to fight sin that is revealed and go to work and growing and following you, Lord. I just thank you for that journey. Thank you for your perseverance in us. I pray, Lord, that we would correct the pride and the selfishness in us that causes us to look to you a holy and sovereign god and question or doubt or or even challenge you to say what are you doing why not this way like who are we god to tell you who is perfect in all your ways what to do that even as we can be experiencing great storms and dark hours that our faith in you, our trust in you would abound. And our testimony of who God is and what he's due and worthy of would be bright. Not because of us, God, who are we, but because of your work in and through us. Lord, help us to fight our sin, to be overly concerned with each other in ways we shouldn't, to be consumed by wanting to be in the know and these these things that get us just distracted. Help us to do our job well to focus on you to make disciples into the nations to testify the gospel to all that you put in our path to hold fast to truth and love that we'd heed your direct call that each of us would follow you make much of your holy name that as the purpose of this gospel proclaimed that many would believe in Christ to be saved. And so we stand on just the shoulders of these truths that have come from your word in many places today to worship you, to cry out that we are here to battle with you, for you, to know that you have us, to know that you will work in all things for our good, for your glory. So hear us now as we respond and as we prepare to go on mission, on purpose for what you have before us this day, this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.